Hello everyone, I'm Neil Murphy. Welcome to If Glasgow Spools Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. Every building and every street has a story to tell, and the purpose of this podcast series is to explore stories in all kinds of places to find out what they say about the lives of people in and around them. If the walls could talk, what would they say? But what if there are no walls? What if the buildings have disappeared? In this episode, we ask, who tells the stories when homes are demolished and communities are torn apart? When whole neighbourhoods become piles of rubble, where do people's memories go? Today, we are delighted to be meeting the BAFTA Scotland Young Talent Award-winning photographer and filmmaker Chris Leslie. His remarkable work over the last 25 years provides thought-provoking answers to such questions. From Warton Sarajevo to the heart and soul of Glasgow, he has painstakingly documented what it is like to live on the front line between demolition and regeneration. His images are powerful, often hauntingly bleak, but also often startlingly beautiful. Yet, as he explains, he's not out to take pretty pictures. His work, he says, is perhaps 20% photography, 80% research, walking, talking, listening, and looking. Indeed, he often starts without a camera at all. And this story is not about him. Always, he is determined that the story should be told by the voices of the people whose real lives were lived in these demolished buildings. So that's Glasgow Voices. And he explains why he believes they must be heard. Okay, Chris. So how did it all begin? Can you tell us what you were doing in Sarajevo in 1996 and why you were there? And had you even held a camera before? Um, so going back to 1996, I was a psychology um, politics graduate um, from Glasgow Caledonian University. So I wasn't doing photography or studying photography. Right, okay. And, um, you know, I think like most people, they kind of watched the wars in former Yugoslavia from a kind of distance on TV, you know, nightly news reports and stuff. Um, and it was f- fairly brutal, but I, I couldn't understand any of it. And, and I kind of tuned in, scratched my head, and then tuned out because these wars happening in former Yugoslavia were... You know, a distant universe for a wee guy Fairdry, you know. So, um, sure. but yeah, I ended up writing my th- to do a thesis um, as part of my degree, and um, I, I kind of chose to look at former Yugoslavia um, from a psychological, political perspective about the nationalism and ethnic cleansing. And um, yeah, basically that just started this kind of obsession with the <laughs> with the Balkans, sometimes a, 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 um unhealthy obsession. And um, uh-huh. I was just really keen to get there, so really keen to get there, but didn't want to go and, and kind of, you know, didn't want to go during the war, couldn't go during the war. Um, and wanted to go after the war, after I'd, it happened that I'd graduated at the same time, the wars were over and there was a lot of kind of peace building projects. So I tried to I volunteer, I wanted to volunteer in the region. So the idea was to, how do I do that? And um, yeah, I had to, this is the days before, just before the internet, where I had, I had to fax a CV um, to some <laughs> German NGO um organization and they matched you up with these small voluntary projects you know throughout the world and you could specify what reason so but anyway so the, the long story was that I, I had to do a cv and it's your first cv and anyone who's done a cv their first cv realizes it's a very traumatic thing to do because you've got nothing to say <laughs> oh, <laughs> tell me about it particularly skills and interest <laughs> it was like you know it was half a page it was blank and I put in photography and said, yeah, I quite like the idea of uh, photography and it's quite cool sounding. And um, yeah, so faxed the CV off and then, you know, a few months later they came back and said we have this project in a small town called Pakrats in, in Croatia, a small kind mm-hmm. of rural town mm-hmm. and um, volunteer project where they like to come and work there, live there for, you know, three, four months. And um yeah, one of the it was a social reconstruction project doing a lot of different projects. But one of the projects was, can you teach children photography? We have a small school here, and we work with Serb kids and Croat kids, and it's a kind of integration project. And I said, yeah, of course, that's that's easy. And um, I then had like three months to, <laughs> to learn the dark room to, to try to hold up a camera, all of these things. So to- totally winged it, totally winged myself into the Balkans, yeah. and totally kind of winged myself into photography 
Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, it was a big fat lie on my CV, basically. <laughs> so you hadn't, you hadn't even been in a darkroom before? No, no. I, I, well, I, I'd learned in Airdrie, and I joined right. the, the amateur photography group with a lot of old men who were, were taking pictures of swans and developing them, and you kind of waited outside the, the cupboard for a long time to, to get to, yeah, yeah. to develop yep. your work. But it, it, was, it was perfect, you know, because I, I had no idea. So... Once I'd learned that and I'd bought lots of books from Oxfam and, and was a photographer, um, I then spent um, I, I spent four months living in a small kind of destroyed town, um, mm-hmm. working on social reconstruction projects. And unfortunately, the photography project never took off, really, because there was no supplies. And, and in the end, the project was kind of falling apart anyway. Um, but I kind of then decided to go back to Sarajevo um, and I then kind of set up my own Sarajevo Camera Kids project. And that's what I've done for the next three years, every summer. Right, fantastic. Um, all of this, pr- pretty much, you know, also in avoidance of getting a real job, I guess, you know, and, and social sciences degrees are great for that, <laughs> if you want to reality. <laughs> um, yeah, but just, but just for me, it was just that time, it was just that time to, to absorb things, you know, it was really special for, for me, the Balkans, um, because I, I wasn't a photographer and there was no pressure to capture anything and that's kind of yeah. key as well. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Were you then taking photographs at that time? Were you recording, you know, what you were seeing out there and the kind of the aftermath I, of the I, war? I took, a, I took a few, yeah, I took a few. I mean, everything was heavily destroyed. It was a very surreal experience, you know. I, I mm, never... I can imagine. Bakrat's the small town I was living in was, was, was like 80, 90% destroyed. So right. the war Horrible. was over and there was no conflict or stuff, but everything was heavily destroyed and the town was divided and there was a lot of kind of stress and, and, and obviously peacetime brings its own kind of issues. Um, and then going into Sarajevo was, you know, Sarajevo's that city, you know, like Glasgow, heavily, heavily destroyed, you know, bombarded mm. and sickled for mm. almost four years. Um, yeah. And, and completely kind of wrecked. So it was a very surreal, but I had the camera, but I took a few photographs, but they weren't very good. Um, and I just kind of left them and just, it wasn't about photography. It was about the experience for me. Yeah. And ex- yeah, yeah. my reason for being there was to teach these kids and so I really wasn't interested at all, and I took a few photographs, but none of them were that good. I think, or, or, or I didn't have the pressure of capturing images. It's been such an important time for me, I guess, um, because as soon as you start working professionally, you're always taking pictures. It's impossible not to, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of key, f- you know, um, formational stage in your career. And you yes. as a person as well, that must have had a massive yep. influence on you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely when you come around to m- moving into Glasgow and, and living in East End and, and then mm. mm-hmm. starting to see, uh, you know, a, a lot of kind of like frontline areas almost, you know, mm. mm-hmm. um, and, and this then connection between the Balkans kind of started to slowly kind of seep into my own, my own work, you know, and, and where I was going to... Yeah, I can, I, I can imagine. I mean, obviously it's it's... You know that that was from warfare, whereas what was happening in in Glasgow was planned. Yeah, yeah. In a sense, but it was the, the same kind of psychological impact on a population. Um, kind of, you know, the the destruction of your 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 you know the, that meaning that a place gives you, and is is, is wiped out and obliterated. How do you, as a population, recover from that? Yeah. I mean, listen. There's obvious right from the outset. There's obvious differences between what happened in, in, in the Balkans and what happened in, in, in Glasgow. Or let's say Sarajevo is an example in terms of a city. <coughs> in terms of a city. Sorry, um, mm-hmm. you know the human suffering can't be underestimated in terms of what happened in Bosnia. Um, this was a deliberate yeah. kind of warfare campaign. You know, ethnic cleansing, genocide. So I have to always have to call that out. You know, but. As an artist and as a photographer and, and living in the East End and, and, you know, I started this kind of documentation in Glasgow around the time when we were awarded the Commonwealth Games mm-hmm. back in 2007 and, and how that was going to transform the city. Right. And um, so there was, just, there was obvious diff, there was obvious similarities um, in terms of the physical landscape, and, you know, in terms of the destroyed or neglected um, particularly Delmarnock, I lived around the corner from Delmarnock and it was just frontline Sarajevo, you know, the, there was the, the, there was a block around kind of Arden Lee Street 
you know, Victorian red sandstone buildings that had been left too rot for 10 years and all the windows were smashed, half the buildings had gone because they'd been set in fire. It was just absolutely mental. Um, and you, you, you then realised there's lots of areas around the city yes. like that, yep. you know, and then you started to see these partially demolished high-rise flats as well, you know, that were slowly being brought down by long-reach cranes with these huge steel te- you know, teeth on the end of it, slowly nibbling away, or they would be blown up overnight. It was just really kind of intense an intense assault, I would say, you know, um, and that's what kind of started to to kind of um, make make this connection with my time in the Balkans and um, and what's happening in, in, in Glasgow, you know. That kind of brings us on to question two, which is kind of always move, moving forward a little in time to where where you are kind of um, at that point, and this is kind of from you know where you were in Sarajevo to kind of coming up to things like Red Road and, and, and Glasgow. And by, by 2010, you'd graduated with a Master's in Distinction in Documentary Photography. And for your final project, you'd chosen to focus on what was happening with Glasgow's high-rise flats. And it's that same kind of, you know, what we were discussing, that kind of um, link between the two in terms of the impact of what happens on, to a city and the meaning of a sense of place. I think you know the first place that caught my eye around two thousand eight when I started my masters was a it was the Oatlands was the old Oatlands which kind of um, was across from where I was living in Bridgeton and um, that was the first because that was a an area that had been it had been um, emptied about ten years ago um, and it was being partially slowly destroyed to make way for the M seventy four extension um, at that time. So yeah, and that resem- that took me back to Packrats. You know, this small mm-hmm. town in Packrats. It was that mm-hmm. was there was there was roads laid into it that had all been ethnically cleansed, and all the families had been you know some quite horrific ways of of leaving your home. But people left lots of belongings behind because there was a real hurry, there was a real rush, there was a real uncertainty, uh, and that was the thing with the Oatlands. You know, there mm-hmm. was loads of stuff lying around, and I was coming back with big bags full of stuff and starting this kind of you know trying to track down residents from things that had been left behind and stuff. Um, so that kind of caught my eye. And, and I guess in terms of my imagination, it was like, you know, right. the, the buildings, and particularly the high-rise buildings, are either on on route to be demolished or partially demolished. You know, they're a joy to photograph. They're very kind of, you know, dystopian, great, big, massive structures. But what was important, what I didn't kind of grasp was the actual scale of it, mm-hmm. you know, because Glasgow was knocking down these high-rise flats at such a ferocious pace. You know, between... 2070, 2016, the city lost about 35% of its high-rise housing stock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a massive, kind of, you know, small part. You know, people reminisce about slum clearances and stuff, but this was happening in a short, short period of time, you know. Mm-hmm. I totally understand where you're coming from there. Um, one of the things, this is my, my hidden past, I was one of the architects for Elphinstone Place, in Glasgow, which was going to be this 39-story tower block that was um, going to be on the site, which is now Scottish Power, next to the MA on St. Vincent Street, which is going to be Scotland's tallest building. And so as part of that, we had to do kind of a whole impact assessment of what the impact of this was going to be on Glasgow's skyline. And so we had to go and do kind of distance shots across the city that you know could show how the building would be dropped into that context, and you could see the whole skyline of the city, and you could see where all the tower blocks was. And this was at that time. This was um, sort of 2004, 2005, and that was a really interesting experience because you got to realise just how you know it wasn't like I mean Glasgow when you kind of when you're in the city centre and you're moving around the city centre, you're very conscious of it being a grid city and having this very American feel to it. Um, but then when you go back out to the outskirts and you're looking back in at that time, you're really conscious there was no kind of classic pattern of a traditional central business district kind of thing with the tall buildings being clustered there. It wasn't like that at all in Glasgow. It was these kind of random outcrops of tall to very tall buildings scattered around the city with no kind of clear pattern to what was going on. And when you look at that now, the kind of the clearance of it is pretty phenomenal. It's, it has gone through a massive change. And at one point, Glasgow in um, kind of Europe uh, was slightly, it was it was right up there with Moscow in terms of the number of 20 plus story blocks of flats around the city. 
But I think if you reevaluated that now, it would be completely different because so many of them have gone. Yeah, yeah. And there were so many that I didn't even get the chance to document. You know, it became a full-time job to yeah. keep up. Um, yeah, I can imagine. And, and, and I wasn't, you know, I, so I started this as my master's project and I finished my master's in 2010, but I just continued um, documenting it. Um, but, you know, I, I had no client, I had no commission. Um, I got some funding from Creative Scotland t- t- towards the publication and, and to kind of collaborate some of mm-hmm. my work, but it was pretty much, you know, me, myself and I just continually doing this because I just, I, I couldn't believe the scale of it, you know. Um, it was buildings that I photographed, like the Gorbals, that I, I didn't even document properly. I, I acknowledge that I documented it because I think any stories from residents and stuff, I just didn't have the time. Because Red Road was massive, Site Hill was massive. Sure. But yeah, it was, it was a massive change in, in the city, but what got me is that nobody really cared about that. You know, um, because this is all progress and this is all good for the city, of course. Um, so, and I just was like, where, where are the other voices here? Where are the residents? You know, out with the headlines of the Evening Times and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of inspired me. Yeah, that to me has been what's really been very interesting about your work is being able to capture that. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, really came to kind of the fore in public discussion in advance of the Commonwealth Games and um, the, the proposal to demolish Red Road on the Commonwealth Games as part of the, the you know, this, the opening ceremony, which was just astonishing because um, it was in such bad taste because those were people's homes and the people's memories. And there's this great quote from here of, um, you know, a, a voice from Red Road um, that it's not the actual building itself, but it's all your memories. That was where I was brought up and that's where I was made. And that's true. And, and, and doing something that's it's an act of violence that would perform, you know, be shown to the world. Glasgow doing an act of violence against itself. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was mm-hmm. completely bizarre. And I'm so glad they dropped it. It was yeah. totally inappropriate. I think at the time I had a few kind of fallouts, <laughs> not fallouts, or heated discussions in pubs because I, I wanted them to do that. You know, I wanted them to blow up Red Road in front of this audience really? of a billion people. <laughs> because you know what? From that audience of a billion people and within Glasgow, it would have generated a discussion about it. Because the point was there was not even a discussion. You know, there was some MSPs coming out saying, oh, these flats should be used for, for refugees. Isn't it terrible? You know, the one of the block, which I documented, was full of refugees. Yeah. Um, the other ones were stripped back to their skeletal state years ago. So there was no way back for them, you know, and, and all of a sudden they had this period in the limelight, which then kind of faded away when that demolition didn't didn't happen, you know. But yeah, I just thought, let's have a dialogue about it. Let's, you know, is blown up failed social housing a good thing? You know, because it just felt, you know, playing Glasgow, you know, there was no alternative. You know, what was the alternative at that point? Uh, you know, this is this was these flats mm-hmm. had been stripped back and emptied the residents for years. Yeah. They were now just a blot on the landscape. But all the new wee pockets of housing that were built across the road from it, they were continually looking at a skeleton of a of, of a building for, for, for years, you know. Yeah. So it's like what what yes. do you, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. do yeah. with it? Um I mean, yeah, as we both know in the end it, it didn't happen. I get all of that, but um I don't know because I, I, you know, I don't come from Glasgow. I, I was brought up in the Far East, and to me, something like that, it was like the message that was being sent was that kind of we're so affluent and careless that there are, you know, millions of people throughout the Commonwealth who are living below the breadline and in poverty. And here we are in the affluent West. We could just kind of, well, yeah, it was a failed housing experiment. Yeah, yeah, you know, course. just yeah, blew it up yeah. for a bit of entertainment. Yeah, yeah. And but it was seen as progress. So that, that's the idea. It's how it's yeah. how deeply entrenched the hatred of, of high-rise buildings were, then, and the idea that you know because it was it was a rebirth. That was what the city council and the, the you know the city fathers, Commonwealth Games yeah. organised the rebirth of a city. Um, because you know we could talk all day, but that's the idea of you bring down the building and you, you take away all the social problems that are connected with that building in that area because that's what's yes. causing all these problems. And so there was just this kind of mindset that's, that's always existed in, in, in Glasgow, as you know. It's just like, you know, let's just clear the buildings and you clear all the social problems. And um, and you rebirth, <laughs> which is bollocks, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, you don't learn any lessons. I mean, we went through all of this with... With the, with the City Improvement Trust and kind of, you know, the sort of 1866 onwards, 
with the clearances all around, you know, where I am at the moment in the heart of uh, the, the Merchant City and right next door to Trongate, you know, all this area was completely flattened. And then it was only kind of the noble poor who was who were allowed back into these, you know, more prestigious tenements because it was all protecting this image of Glasgow. And everybody else was like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't get back in. You lot toddle off to the to to, to Gorbals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hence all the overcrowding in the Gorbals because all they did was shift the problem from one place to another. And it's not actually, so, you know, solving the yeah. problem. And um, it's not actually, you know, some people got better housing conditions out of that. A lot of people ended up in worse housing conditions as a consequence. Yeah. You know, and that's, it's kind of Glasgow's, it's, it's, it's a problem that's been with us all the way because you just can't keep up with the extent of the problem. Yeah, definitely. So going, going back to, to Red Road, um, you know, this obviously kind of like it was a really proud symbol for Glasgow that we had the kind of tallest council flats in Western Europe. Um, what was it like documenting their dying years? Yeah, it was, it's, it was a long project, I think, documenting it. I, I was invited in to do some documentation. There was a group of artists invited and to, to to document Red Road because the City Council and the, the GHA, Glasgow House Association, realised, I guess, the scale of, of, of what was happening in the city. So Red Road Flats would be the poster girl, if you like, yeah, for a better word, want of a better word, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. To, to, to kind of facilitate all these changes and, and have stories and, and um, you know, lots of projects for young, the young people that were left in the flats were predominantly younger asylum seeker children. Um, some kind of documentation and stuff. So it was a very um, good project to, to get invited into, but it was it was very controlled, if you like, in terms of what stories you could tell. You know, no mention of asbestos, no mention of. Uh, I mean, at that time as well, there was a, the the tragic incident of the asylum seekers who, who jumped off one of the, mm, the mm. buildings. You know, yeah, so there horrible. was just lots of things going on. But so it, I just felt to me it wasn't kind of getting the real story. But it, it got as I said, it was it was a long project, and it was myself and a few other artists involved in it. Um, you know, and um, it took a long time. It took a long time for that building to to be, you know, deemed unfit for a, a habitation until it was actually demolished. You know, it's like two thousand and seven to finally been, or maybe even earlier, probably even earlier. I just started working there, two thousand and seven. So there was a kind of, you know, a real connection with, with Red Road. Um, you know. For me, it was this idea of this kind of, you know, what was the role of the photographer here and what, what I was doing? Because I realised, yeah, I'll, I'll tick the boxes for the Red Road project, it was called, but I knew I had other stuff I wanted to document. Um, and I guess it was that tension between, you know, doing some kind of fine art photography of interiors of, you know, partially demolished buildings and views out the window, um, or... Was it something bigger? Was this a social history project? And it was. It wasn't about my photography. So there was that. That kind of started to develop through that time period of, of kind of um, Red Road as well. And, and because that became more important than my style of photography or, or the images I was taking. And without the residents' voices, mm-hmm. um, it, it, the, the pictures to me were, were, were nothing really, you know. Um, so it, I, I think it was good because I had the time um, to do it because it, it was such a long period of documentation as well, going back and forward. And we just thought they would, they would last forever. <laughs> they would always be there, even in their skeletal state. Um, yes. So there was no, yeah, immediacy with that, with that work, you know. Sure. Um, when you're capturing those images, obviously you are using camera equipment, etc., to kind of record, you know, both those images and the voices. Can you tell us more about the technical aspects of it? Because I'm sure some of our listeners will be interested in that. Things, you know, what are your favourite lenses? Do you have any unusual kit or techniques as part of your work? Um, do you still have that old Canon camera? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I started. The, because I was doing my masters, I shot a lot of work around Site Hill with a Mamiya um, 6x6 film camera, um, and I'd done a few portraits and, and, and kind of shots. Um, but it was it was quite a kind of slow process that idea, and and it, it wasn't allowing me to capture as much as I wanted. So I then kind of jumped to digital uh, SLR shooting, um, and the SLRs changed at that time. But um, digital SLRs that you could then shoot HD video with the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was a transformation thing because yeah. you could then shoot HD video as well as uh, rather than this, um, you know, six x six medium format film. 
Um, so I, I kind of just, you know, I, I ran with that. And there was no particular lens. There was no particular, it was a kind of standard zoom lens that I used. I then got an audio recorder to help record, to record audio interviews with, with the residents. Um, occasionally video, but mainly audio. Um, and I wanted to capture the audio in high quality as I could. So it wasn't never about a specific lens or look. Um because I needed kind of flexibility to capture everything. And, and time was tight because the buildings were disappearing around me. So it was almost like supermarket sweep. I was getting in and capturing as much as I could. And digital was great. It's great for that, you, you know, and, and I've still got a hard sure. drive full yeah, yeah. of like, thousands of photographs. Um, so, yeah, it, it was... And, and again, that's why, you know, when you when you look... The, the, the book that came out, Disappear in Glasgow, was a very wide-ranging style of photography with different lenses and, and, and you know, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. because it was just... And it was over eight years as well, you know, so it was like things changed, technology changed and stuff. But it was about capturing it as, as sure. fast as I could. It was never about the aesthetics of the camera um, or the lens, you know. Sure, absolutely. Um, and, you know, with, with regards to, you know, capturing stuff and the audio aspect of it, you know, just wanted to say that, you know, your, your, your stories, those recordings that you made as part of Disappear in Glasgow you know, highly recommend that our listeners do actually listen to these and that we'll have links that we can give um, as the, at the end of this conversation. And, um, you know, just having, you know, having heard them that, you know, these are, are really moving stories and it's stories of, of people's loss, um, you know, loss of people's homes and um, memories of place. And so, you know, and this is all part of, you know, when we, begin to look at this as a society, we realize that the actual impact, and this is a, something I'm very interested in because it's stuff that Harry Burns talks about with kind of um, urban health aspect of Glasgow and how much things like the urban clearances in Glasgow damaged the psyche of the city and, and people's kind of, because of their loss of sense of place within the city. So I'm, I'm very interested about stuff like that, but I, I wanted to know about how that kind of the impact of the demolition was for, for you personally, and how did you feel recording that final destruction of Red Road? Um, yeah, I think I, I remember that the, the last day, as you know, we spoke earlier about the idea the flats would be blown up as part of the Commonwealth Games opening ceremony. That that didn't happen. So October two thousand fifteen, this was the day the rest of the flats would be demolished. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd photographed a few. You remember Red Road was was came down in stages as well. So this was like the third stage. And, you know, you, you yeah. get, like, 200 people out, like, in their pyjamas for f- the north of the city taking pictures of their phone and, and the building comes down and, and everything goes. But that, to blow up the, the remaining six, seven buildings was, was a, a big event. So there was lots of people on the street and I remember just waiting all day in the press area, waiting, because I was filming it for a documentary mm-hmm. I was doing as well as shooting it. Um, right. But, yeah, it was it was just, it was, I don't know, maybe they had a, I always joke that they had a sell-by date on all the explosives they had. <laughs> and then they had to blow up within <laughs> a year. But um, yeah, it was it was it was a relief when it came down because it, it was almost like the end of a chapter for me in the end of this kind of project. Because this is where yeah. I started to kind of wind down and, and Site Hill was there's still stuff going on Site Hill, but Red Road was a big project. So it felt like a kind of you know, full stop or maybe a comma. I don't know. I don't know what was the best to explain it. But then obviously when the dust settles and there's two buildings you know half buildings left um you know that was just yeah. brilliant because yeah, it was just awkward. as you know they were going to hang around for a <laughs> wee bit more <laughs> yeah hanging out for a wee bit more you know this kind of watch demolition we're not disappearing that easy and then the next day i was up again that morning i was up shooting those shooting the buildings that there was no there was very little security there was i think they were all in a meeting trying to work out mm-hmm. <laughs> how to demolish the buildings and I remember myself and a few other photographers, because all the press had left the day before buildings are down, but the next morning it was like, they're still there. And it was the most amazing um, photographs. Um, um, we're just walking around and people from the area walking around and right up close to the buildings, the buildings are like, you know, leaning to a pizza. And um, yes, it was it was almost as if I couldn't let go of Red Road, you know, and Red Road was still kind of hanging around for a wee bit sure. longer, you know. So that was quite interesting. Yes. Yep. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, your, your book, Disappearing Glasgow, which documents you know, this multimedia project um, over the course of the eight years that you're working on, it was published in 2017, then it too disappears, and there's a whole kind of story about that, but can you explain what happened and talk more generally about the impact 
or influence of um, photographs on the urban landscape? Um, yeah, I, I guess it was just so for the book. So I, I, Disappearing Glasgow as a project always existed online in terms of the short film. So the short films were mm-hmm. done way before the book. Um, and it never been about doing a book. It was never started this project and said, ah, I want to do a book. Because it would have been a very different approach that I had. So it was just the idea when when the, when I had kind of discussions with publishers around 2016. And um, they said, yeah, we'd, we'd like to do something. And um, that was like, wow, we're getting published. Um, and I brought in some kind of, you know, some really good architects and academics to kind of write you know, short essays on the different areas and, and, and areas that they had the knowledge of, but also tell all the resident stories. So it was it was more than a photo book. It was more than just, mm. it was quite mm. a substantial kind of, um, you know, document telling what had happened in, in, in those times. But yeah, so it, it was published. They sold they sold two editions and, and um, it was great and done loads of tours and done Edinburgh Book Festival and iWrite and all that. Mm-hmm. And then the publisher, you know, they, they send you a royalty statement saying this is how much you're getting. You're like, oh, that's quite exciting to know you could get money. And then they went into liquidation and there was no money. And the book disappeared because it had all been sold and um, then became quite, a, to me, quite a toxic project. Not because, oh, I didn't get the money, but just because it felt like eight years of my work that I'd handed to someone else and they botched it, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and they, they kind of didn't look after it and it was like, you know, giving your child to someone to, to look after. So anyway, the book, the book's gone. I mean, the book's, what's, what the positive thing about it is the book's very rare now, you know, there's people contact me daily, have you any books, any books? And they're, they're gone and, and you know, there, there's a few copies out there going at quite a, crazy price so but I, again it, it was never about that it was the the, the the project was to be accessible and it was to be accessible from people who I'd spoken to and interviewed in the residence and about the city wider it wasn't about having the book so everything's on disappearingglasgow.com as a website you know and that was always the kind of key um, aspect to it. and that that's still there that'll be there for for a wee while longer so so people can kind of access the, the short films there um, but I guess to me you know in terms of you know photographing the urban landscape stuff as I've seen earlier the, the, the book I've showed it to some photographers and they kind of scratched their head because there's so many different styles and variety and approaches and that you know most photo books particularly you would get a book and, and it's, it's there's the one consistent style all the way through it and that that kind of mm-hmm. fine art approach to it and, 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 and the stuff but as I explained earlier to me it was about social history it was more important. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's maybe in some ways it's not a photography book <laughs> for all the purists out there because um, it's such a range of range of styles and, and, and maybe not great images, but the images relate to the text and what's been kind of said in the stories by the residents and stuff, you know? Sure, absolutely. I suppose it kind of falls into that kind of Glasgow tradition where you've got Thomas Andon. I mean, obviously he doesn't interview all the people he's seeing, but, you know, that fantastic set of photographs yeah. recording this kind of you know unwinding of a kind of great medieval city and its replacement with something completely different is very similar to what you were doing just you know best part of a century and a half later yeah and i guess you just you use the technology that, that you've got to do that that's available to you at, at the time you know yeah. um yes I, i'm very everybody's always very envious of those images tom sanan's how did you that's absolutely outstanding you know and at the same time, we're shooting multimedia, shooting HD video, shooting with drones, shooting with... So I'm sure he might have been quite envious of <laughs> what he can capture these I, days. I bet, I, bet, I bet he was. I mean, the thing that fascinates me about Thomas Annan is that when you actually really think about what a city is like, it's not just kind of the pretty images. It's you actually have to think about all the other stuff associated with the city. So, you know, the, the smells, the noise... All of that. So when he was actually going into some of these kind of, you know, wines and back lanes, they must have stunk to high heaven. And he would have had to spend ages setting up all his kit to take those photographs and kind of put up with all these people going, what are you doing, big man, kind of thing at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would have been, you know, must have been really, really interesting. And um, fascinating, very similar to what you've been, been up to, kind of, you know, recording this snapshot in time before it all disappears. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, that, that, I think the idea is well, running around any city with a camera, is, you, you're always asking for trouble you're certainly asking for questions you know what are you doing what are you doing so far yes. what do you think say? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah get, get, get that yeah, along yeah and we, we, we disping, with that whole project Disping Glasgow I didn't really there, there was nothing I encountered um, that, that was kind of 
similar to that. I, I think there was a thing about gaining people's trust as well. People began to knew who I was in these kind of communities because I'd spent so much time um, documenting. But also what was key in, in many ways is for a lot of the places I went to, particularly around the monarchies, I didn't take the camera initially. I, I just arrived and had a chat with people, you know. It just felt rude, you know. It just felt, you know, like... Yeah, yeah, and, then, and, and that was, you know, it was a case with one of the ladies uh, documented, um, Margaret Giaconelli, who, who was living in Denmark at the, the mm-hmm, time of the Commonwealth mm-hmm. Games. And that, that was quite an emotional kind of hard story to, to document. You know, eventually she was, uh, you know, forcibly evicted from her house and stuff. And I remember meeting her, photographing these same Victorian red sandstone tenements I was talking about, which I thought were empty back in 2008. And I, I didn't mm. even notice there was net curtains and wee ornaments at one of the windows. And she was shouting out the window to me, like, you know. And she started speaking to me. And then we sat and spoke for hours and she told me everything about her story. And if I immediately got the camera out, it would have broken that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, def- definitely. Uh, no, there were two points I was going to sort of come back to you there on, which was, um, this is in a, a previous life. It's back to 2006, 2007. We, um, this is with a firm of architects I was working for at the time, Austin Smith-Lord. Um, we did a whole kind of survey of that area as part of trying to get Bridgeton Cross turned into a conservation area and trying to show how you could regenerate the area. And it was kind of a master plan for the area. So we were out scouting the whole area. And it was then you realized the respect you had to treat people with, particularly, you know, some of the traveler settlements that you had to be really careful. If anyone saw you with a camera, you were an automatic threat. And so you had to make sure that you asked for permission and you treated people with respect. First of all, before embarking on anything like that, yeah. and so it was acute, acutely kind of conscious of all of that. And the second thing, this is more personal stuff. My my um, partner, my other half, um, was brought up in a tenement on the corner of. It's just up from the Kinning Park complex. There's like a tenement right next door, just to the south of the Kinning Park complex. You know, you know where I am. Vaguely, vaguely. Kind of. This is in um, Kinning, Kinning Park, right next to the subway station. He was like in the opposite tenement from that, which is now under the M8. And so he kind of was brought up a whole kind of, um, is it McClellan Street? That was the longest street in Glasgow. And it's just like this ruthless line of tenements that just keeps going and is completely astonishing. Of course, none of that exists anymore because it completely disappeared. And, you know, the way he talks about all of that was actually, you know, this was a really fantastic area and how they were they could all kind of play in the streets and people were safe and they had a fantastic park right next door and then all of this kind of just disappears and he's got photographs of what the area was like after everyone had moved out of it and how haunting it was and it would have been exactly the same as you were experiencing pre-commonwealth games and you're thinking didn't we learn anything from like what happened in the 1970s and kind of the devastation that inflicted on communities then and it's it's quite depressing that you know we still haven't learned those lessons and quite yeah quite quite frustrating mm-hmm. that anyway back to where you are on your journey so you then went on and produced another book which was also kind of about kind of this was an even longer term relationship with a place which was you, you know a Balkan journey so and all about your experiences um, out in that part of the world and how that's kind of a culmination of 24 years worth of work. And you're now doing this again with um, the invasion of Ukraine. And, um, you know, of course, it now looks as though kind of that whole, you know, obviously that, that's a massive issue. And um, there was an article in The Garden earlier this year, and you, you wrote about a striking image of hope you captured on your last visit. And I was just wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah, I think the the, the Guardian. I, I I do some photo essays for the Guardian and stuff, and there was a yes a series. Yeah, very good. My my favourite um, image, I think it was, and and that's very hard <laughs> to to choose. Um, but yeah, I, just to clarify, it, it was in um, this is all about Bosnia. I'm I'm doing anything in Ukraine yet. Um, but um, yeah, I went to document Sarajevo 20 years after the, the peace agreement had been signed in that city that brought an end to the, the four years of war and siege. Um, and going back to my first time then when I had this camera and shooting black and white film mm-hmm. and not very, wasn't very interesting, the photographs weren't very good. Now, the city's been rebuilt completely now. So that's when 
the black mm-hmm. and white pictures mm-hmm. I took 20 years ago suddenly that are quite interesting so I was going back 20 yeah, years to kind much. of document whatever you know how the people were marking this event and, and what was happening in the city and you know and not much was happening because life kind of moves on you know the city's been rebuilt people move on people have things they do with their lives Bosnia in particular don't want to dwell on a lot of anniversaries because the certainly with the younger people, they want to kind of look forward mm-hmm. as well. Um, there's certain events around the genocide in Srebrenica and stuff that, 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 that require to be um, marked and, and, and understood and remembered. Um, but there's also a lot of young people who just want to kind of move forward now. You know, they can't have the war dragging them, their city, their country back. So there was just a photograph I was taking, or a kind of landscape picture of Sarajevo, and it's from an area called Zutatabia, which is an old fort, and there's a viewpoint over the city where you get to see the whole city. Mm-hmm. And then um, this couple kind of came and walked into my shot, and I was raging. <laughs> and then they just had this kind of grasp, you know, and they, they kind of they grasped each other, and they looked out over the city, and it was like, bang, there you go. Um, <laughs> they, they ruined my picture, but maybe it's all right. But I, I think, you know, the, the image was kind of represented, you, you know, Sarajevo's got that kind of name that evokes a lot of things about war and about destruction and, and, and about division and, and ethnic cleansing and just everything that was wrong in that war. And this was one moment looking on when the city's been rebuilt and this idea that cities will kind of come back to life, if you like, you know, they slowly rebuild themselves back kind of from, from anything, you know, from destruction, from, 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 you know, I guess looking at Glasgow and what we keep doing wrong in Glasgow, you know, is that things will hopefully get better, you know. Um, in Glasgow, the idea of maybe there's lots of kind of new building working on and lots of homes being built across the city, you know. So Glasgow's rebuilding also requires, as you're pointing on, there's, you know, we need to have it, you know, two hundred thousand people to move back within the city boundaries. Yeah, yes, yeah, to, to make this a functioning city, to get the taxes to pay for all these things, and all this in infrastructure. People come in and out of Glasgow, then kind of leave, and that's a real problem, you know. So Glasgow's attempting to to address that within you kind of new housing and all these kind of things. So that was you know, to make a connection with that image of, of hope. To have an image of hope for for Glasgow. Yeah, you know, yes. um, it's just we, we need to ensure that we're building you know, proper housing, sustainability, affordable housing, and, and for families, for all Glaswegians to, to actually stay within the city. Because we can't be in this position as well where we get to this level of hope and and, and, and everything's great in the city, and then 40 years later, <laughs> down the line, we're knocking down the same buildings that we've just kind of replaced, you know? So yeah, know. It, it has to change in some ways, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, so that was the, the that was the, the slight connection. I'm trying to connect that image of looking out over Sarajevo and, and what's this image of, of hope across Glasgow. Sure, I don't really have an image. I've got an idea in, in my head that that a lot of people have. You know. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, to me, that's absolutely critical. It's it's with Glasgow. Glasgow's challenge, the challenge for kind of our generation and future generations is how do you put Humpty together again. Because you yeah. know it's it's been through these kind of um, you know you've got the the medieval city gets wiped out by the Victorians well the Georgians then the Victorians and then the Edwardians and then you kind of got interwar growth and there's kind of there there is kind of a bit, it's all quite cohesive then so there are areas kind of getting redeveloped so it's a bit more organic then suddenly you've got this huge rupture after the the Second World War even though Glasgow comes through the Second World War with the exception of Clyde Bank pretty intact. And then you've got this huge rupture where about, you know, there was, there was, a, there was a, a guy looking at this and reckoned it was about 25 to about 30% of the city. The original kind of Victorian Edwardian city was demolished. And starting again, it's, to me, it's the impact of that on people. And it's, it's also that you, you just can't keep affording. It's, it's so wasteful to just bulldoze everything and start again without adapting it. And... I, I, I mean, I'm interested when you, when you look at places like Amsterdam where they don't have that kind of choice because land is so precious there that they can't afford to let you know whole chunks of their city just be bulldozed and start again. They have to work with what they've got and we've kind of got to learn how to do that. And part of what we have to do as a generation is figure out how to heal the city and, um, and to create spaces that can be as, as kind of cherished as what some of these old spaces were. 
and that's that's going to be a massive challenge for the city. So, but hopefully, something you know can can kind of you know arise from from the destruction that happened. So, talking about destruction and loss, um, you know, there is a lot of beauty in your images too, and you've been talking about wanting people to stop and look and you know does does beauty pay a part in any of that yeah i mean some of the images of 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 the high-rise buildings that i took they were never taken to, to you know put on a wall or whatever but you know when when the buildings are stripped and the light's spilling in from every angle and you're looking out you got some kind of nice aesthetic images i remember you know looking at sebastian salgado's work um, when I was doing my masters, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and images of famine and poverty and, and stuff were, were often criticised for, for being too beautiful, and, and therefore insensitive to to the subjects. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But he always argued, I think a lot of talks are you need to kind of you need beauty in your photographs to capture attention, if you like. Yes. And um, you know, particularly now online photographs now have, have even less of an appeal because they're, we've all been programmed to, to view them online like a slot machine. You just swipe, swipe, yeah. swipe. You know, yes. they're looked at for less than a second and then they're gone. So my aim is to kind of create images that kind of can stop people in their tracks. Um, yes. You know, even just for a few seconds. So what is that? Where is that? You know, to question yeah. what, why, who, you know. Um, and that was kind of half half the battle for me, if you like. You know, it was just to create these images. You know, there was the images I took of underground bingo halls at Red Road Flats and stuff. You know, trying... My aim was to get in, is as deep into the building and, and from every angle possible um, to get different pictures because from the ground level there's only so many ways you can shoot a high-rise flat as well. So it was really trying to get in the inside, to get underground, to, to tell that whole story and create these images about, you know, um, about what you're photographing, particularly Red Road Underground, is why is there a bingo hall under Red Road, you know, and then reading from the story from there up to Red Road itself, what happened to everybody in Red Road? You know, that was a small town of 4,700 people. Yeah, so. absolutely. That that fascinates me, and this is kind of personal, again, personal stuff for me. Um, I was brought up in Hong Kong, and so for me, that that kind of connection, because it's something I've never really understood about how, handle, how Glasgow handled high-rises, that because the, the administration in Hong Kong um, were able to learn a lot from the things that went wrong here. So they were able to learn the lessons of that. So in Hong Kong, when I was growing up, and we were probably by that point on to kind of third generation of, of high-rise big, I mean, Hong Kong had the, with Singapore, they were the biggest social landlords in the world. So we always get this kind of, um, it really bugs me when you hear kind of people from the Tory party talking about Hong Kong and Singapore kind of being these visions of capitalism that they want to emulate. And you're like, well, hold on a minute. Actually, you know, they've got these massive social housing programs, which are the biggest in the world. And if you actually wanted to do some of that, maybe, maybe you should be building some council housing here. But the point I kind of wanted to make about that was what the, what the people and the planners in Hong Kong completely got was you can't just build tower blocks in isolation. You have to tie them into the surrounding fabric and you also have to provide all those amenities. And they're obviously trying to do that with Red Road. And the only thing I can suspect was maybe Red Road was too far out of town. Um, but that was absolutely critical to you know, how, how Hong Kong operated because they were conscious they had to provide homes over the longer term that people really wanted to live in, and that meant you had to have all of these amenities as part of it. Marketplaces, swimming pools, tennis courts, you know, your pubs, yep. clubs, shops, all of those kind of things had to be part of the package. It couldn't be separate. So I remember coming here on a school visit in the kind of, this was to the garden center. We stopped en route in the Gorbals and kind of Norfolk Court, Stirling Court, all of, you know, Stirling Ford Court, all, all of that, and being completely horrified mm. that there were no amenities. There was nothing. And it was like, what yeah. got missed as part of this program? That, you know, you can't not have those things. The city doesn't function without it. It was, I, I thought that was bizarre. You know, there's there's been a lot of kind of new housing schemes and stuff in the north of the city, um, but very few facilities, very few amenities. You know, you, you drive to your home, it's still very much, Springburn seems to be the 
place, yeah, and you go by bus. Um, you know, if you don't have a car, it's it's really there's nothing else there. And I think this was one of the arguments in a lot of the residents who I spoke to and people around that. Um, you know, there's the population in small towns living in these blocks, um, and once you, if you don't provide facilities mm. for that, then it's it's, it's going to fundamentally yeah. fail. Yeah. You know, um, so it's about yeah, what's replacing that. Billy Connolly's phrase: "Desert, deserts with windies." Yeah, yeah. I think I, I've had a chance to see the new kind of site hill area, um, and and there's there's lots going on in, in site hill to, to potentially address some of that. There's a kind of you know better community facilities being built, and obviously infrastructure and connection with the city centre and stuff. Um, so hopefully things are starting to yeah yeah being interested to see that too. yeah but the, and it's it's good you know but it's almost like it's it's simple answers you know it's not difficult it's not rocket science to provide these things I, I think it's just all down to budget you know and <laughs> what budgets are available and who's who's going yeah, to yeah abs- yeah very much is and I think in Hong Kong they were they were lucky because um, you know there was a rising tide of the economy. And because the again, this is where Hong Kong's very different from the UK. Um, the government owned all the land, and so the government um, taxes were low because how the government funded itself was it um, drip-fed chunks of land onto the market, and so developers were always prepared to bid high for the land, and that was what paid for, you know, the running of the city. And the the great irony about all of this is, you know, kind of Glasgow and kind of. Um, not quite now because the high rise is coming back, but in places like Manchester, where ironically it's mainly pitched at Chinese investors. Um, and the great irony is like Hong Kong learns the lesson from everything that goes wrong in um, the UK. And then what the irony is, is that China sees Hong Kong as a symbol of modernity. And suddenly you get all these Chinese cities want to emulate Hong Kong mm. and they get covered in tower blocks. Ta-da! It's... This kind of weird cycle that, um, yeah, stuff that we've turned our back on, they decided is a good thing. And yet, I don't know it's how, how that gels. And you're thinking, there was a reason for them in Hong Kong because we really lacked space. But in China, you don't. So did you have to mm-hmm. do it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, it's I think, quite I mean, I, I guess with Glasgow as well, it's just like, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with living in high-rise buildings as well, you know. But during that period of, of time, yeah, you know, yeah. during that rise. period, you know, from when they were demolishing everything, all these estates, you know, it was just that fear of, you know, if asylum seekers moved into your block, then it's no longer fit for, you know, habitation. Uh, if students moved in, it's no longer, fit. and that's exactly what happened in, in Red Road. It's not fit for habitation, but we'll move the students mm-hmm. in, then we'll move asylum seekers in, mm-hmm. and then it'll be demolished. And it was that kind of pattern. So if you were living in in, in yes. a high rise block at that time, there yeah. was this kind of fear of, you know. Are we next? <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Such, such, such a shame because he, when when you do tend to talk to people who have lived in high rise, actually, you know, people do love them, and and it's the views, it's a kind of um, curious kind of detachment from the city that you're living above the city, but you can get access to the city really quickly as well. Things like that. People love all those aspects of it, and you get real kind of tight knit kind of relationships with between people within them. You know, as neighbors. Um, and yet, we as a society were not very good as kind of at maintaining them in the longer term, having invested so much mm. in the first place. But I think the, the issue with Glasgow is that the the the, 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 the flats past the point of, of of being saved because the kind of social fabric of the building from the inside was yeah. was was just a riot, and and there was drug dealing going on. You know, because a lot of these buildings had no concierge yeah. to start yeah. with. You know, the early eighties in, in in the Glasgow. Very, very, very bleak place, you know. Started deindustrialization. All these yeah, high-rise absolutely. buildings built, you know, the communist model. You build your workers near the workplace. When these workplaces go, and then high unemployment, you know, drugs take hold by default. Once someone starts dealing in a flat, once you get a series of dealers in flats, once people families start to move out, and you're moving in single-parent households, all these things just kind of spiraled into, you know. Mm-hmm. Th- there was one block mm-hmm. I documented down in in. Um, uh, Plain Street in Scotsdon, and um, the residents there actually petitioned <laughs> the, um, mm-hmm. the GHA to blow up because it, they, they called it um, t- Towers of Hell because it was so bad in terms of drugs, in terms of antisocial behaviour, and, and people were just desperate to get out. 
all around those areas were completely were, were the same um, flats, the same exact same architects, exact same plan, exact same buildings, and and they managed to be all right, but these individual blocks themselves, some were, were so bad, and it was just a real because. They mentioned that part of the demolition is about these buildings only have a lifespan of 40, 50 years, so there's structural problems and things like that, and these buildings only had a certain lifespan. And that's just not, not true. You know, this was, this was just that this was... It's all tied into, the, the, you know, the, the kind of economy. And, and bring this demolition brings a lot of money. And, you know, you say you don't pay VAT in demolition as well, so it's a favourable... That, that's a big thing across the UK, a big I, thing. I, I mean, it's, it's just incredible. It's frustrating. Um, but you're, you're fighting great affairs here. Yeah, some, something we absolutely yep. have to definitely, change in future. Definitely. And there's a few people saying it now, yeah. Yeah, and the, the, the carbon yep. generated from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, something I feel quite quite strongly about that. that that's when we when we look at things going forward, you have to look at not just the cost of demolition compared to retention, but it's also things like the carbon that would be generated as part of that should be factored into any new yep. construction. So you're not necessarily net zero because you're already starting with a huge deficit. So you have to think about things like that. Anyway, um, what's next for you then? And um, is there hope in your work? And um, can we talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, things? I think um, for me, I mean, the, the latest project I've done, just going back to your last point about sustainability and demolition and stuff, is a few months ago I was contacted from residents from the Wineford Flats in Mary Hill, um, and they contacted me specifically saying, yeah, 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 yeah. you're the yeah, guy really who documents state. buildings being demolished. And I'm like, oh, I've, I've retired from that. <laughs> and um, they were like, okay, well, come down and speak to us. And, and, and I went down and, and this was like, you know, months after COP26 and all these promises of, of the, the everybody made about, you know, demolition is wrong, the, the, the carbon footprint yeah. of demolition we should be. And they were going to demolish all these flats Um down at um, you know down in Mary Hill yep. you, know, you know on the front line of the of the West End kind of thing so a property developer must be just you know gleaming for the idea you know yeah absolutely I mean I don't see I don't see why they aren't looking at retrofit for that estate because it's a it's kind of you know it's great we enclave and it could work really well for that it would be it could be really it could yep. be a great place you know it is a really interesting place it could it could be you know you could have great homes there as a consequence of that and easy to heat yeah. which is a real yeah. issue now and um and and is a is a massive fuel fuel poverty is a massive yeah. problem in glasgow so you could be addressing those kind of things exactly what kind of collective architecture had been doing with the, the three tower blocks um Whereas it would, yeah, 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 um, the you know, three yeah. tab blocks there being completely overclad and have these sunrooms, yeah. and you can do that, and that's that's what I had hoped the future mm -hmm. of the tower block would be in Glasgow that, that that we would try and save these because if you've made that initial investment, you should be able to turn it around. It should be possible, and you should be able to integrate it into the the building fabric. I mean, all these things have been looked at since nineteen seventies. You kind of know how to do it. And um, yeah. I kind of wish they'd get And there was also, there was, you know, a lot of residents didn't want to move. Um, you know, I documented somebody again. So it, it just, it felt yeah. just yeah, like, absolutely. you know, have we learned anything here? Or are we just kind of going back to the same old, because it's it's right, it's, yeah. it's chosen by market forces are at, are at play here. And that's just always, always going to win. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it must have been known during COP26 because there was initial discussions and, and you know, you know, announcements made in, in January. Um, so the, all these things must have, and you just think that there's there's a better way of of, of, of managing this, you know. So I I don't know. So in terms of hope, I was very kind of like gutted by that, and just thought, are we ever going to learn? Um, but you know, other projects, you know, I'm I'm still kind of pushing this um, walking journey book. Um, I'm still got a few more talks and events planned. So right. um, I'm giving a talk at. Um, Doors Open Day this year as well around Glasgow um, and Sarajevo, Wounded Landscapes it's called, it's very kind of similar to, to what we discussed today so that'll be kind of illustrating right. okay. talk. Um, but yeah I mean it's still, I'm also looking at a project in Cumbernauld um, with two of my friends and colleagues uh, we're called mm -hmm. Ray Collective so there's there's three of us, myself, Mitch Miller, an illustrator and Alison Irvine who's a writer and we want to we want to look at Cumbernauld because Cumbernauld Town Centre is obviously very topical just now because of potentially... Absolutely. Cumbernauld. I was just about to say, it would be the, the town centre and what's going to happen a, with it. 
political hot potato, but it's a hot potato that we want to juggle. <laughs> we want it. Yes, yeah, quite absolutely. Good. Well, good luck with that. I mean, it's a it is the most fascinating building. I, I yeah. yeah, really, I've, I've been around it a couple of times now. And really interesting, and it 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 does kind of it it's reminds me a lot of my childhood. Yeah. So because they have real similarities, kind of mega structures out, out in Hong Kong and stuff here, and I find it in you know a town in Scotland fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's quite something. I mean, all three of us, you know, I, I don't know Cumbernauld really that well, so it's a new. We, we're approaching it with the idea that we don't know much about it because I know you know there's some people who have, you know hold Cumbernauld mm-hmm. dear to their heart, and, and and that's part of the argument just now, obviously, you know, but. I think as well the other side of the argument is is it's a it's a town centre that's that's dead in its arse for a for a better word that just doesn't function as a town centre. Yeah. No town centre functions. Stop functioning. Um yes. so it, I, we can see both sides of the arguments of people who want to preserve it, but at the same time it's for people who live there yeah. as well. We want yes. to try and document yeah, that. Yeah, so absolutely. But yeah, very, very political. But again in, in in terms of the buildings, even through my own work, it was never about the buildings and, and, and disappearing in Glasgow, it was always about the stories. It was always about the people. Um, easy to photograph buildings, you know, and, and, and a joy to photograph, but what's harder is getting the stories. Um, and that's what's kind of interests us, you know, myself, um, Mitch and Alison as well. So we just have to wait and see. We've got an application in for, for, for funding for that project and we'll see kind of how that, how that goes. Great. Yeah. Well, I wish you luck with that. That would be a really fascinating project to kind of, hear more about yeah. and um, see what happens with that legacy. Okay, final question then. And this, we ask everybody who comes on the podcast and it's totally loaded, but it'll be interesting to see which way you bounce. What is your favorite building in Glasgow? So still around or gone? And what would it tell you if it's was good talk? Um, it has to be one that's gone, obviously. I would be shooting myself in the foot if I chose something that's still here. Um, I think to me, you know, living in Deniston now and, and always being in, in East End, the, 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 the kind of White Vale, Blue Vale flats for, for me, these, um, the Gallagher they were demolished in 2015, were just spectacular um, for many reasons. Um, you know, the kind of brutalist, concrete towers that you know architects and mm-hmm. photographers mm-hmm. and artists just loved and everybody else absolutely hated including the city uh, council quite something on the sky <laughs> yeah get them yep. get them to <laughs> f you know everybody <laughs> wanted them gone and um i could see them from my windows you know i could see that you could see them from anywhere in the east end you know very dark imposing kind of yeah. gray yeah, monolithic yeah. structures that just screamed <laughs> to, to be brought down for for anyone passing through Glasgow, yeah. And um, you know, I, I I after Red Road and doing the documentation that was the big project in Glasgow museums that were involved, funded by the JHA Glasgow Life. There was I I thought well there'll be a project there obviously because these are unique kind of buildings and these were the tallest um, buildings um, in terms of they were thirty stories, even bigger than Red Road. And it, yeah, and I thought how do you get involved in this? project of documentation of you know remembrance of you know collective memory and just like, well, there isn't one <laughs> we just wanted to demolish them so um, <laughs> I kind of took that board myself and, and done my own project uh, around it and, and photographing the inside mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. the first residence the, the, the last residence um, so it kind of felt kind of personal to me because it didn't feel as if there was much documentation yeah. um, and in terms of what that building may say, I don't know because I only captured a fraction of its stories before they come down. And I guess that's the real kind of tragedy of it because they probably could have so much more to kind of say. Um, but yeah, that, that that would definitely be the building that I, I would choose, the, the White Vale, Blue Vale Flats. Um, and interestingly, in my studio next door, I've, I've got the original lettering you know, you have the, the tin lettering outside the blocks, 51 Whiteville. I, I borrowed that from... <laughs> I, I did ask for it. I didn't steal it, and, and, you know, for for an exhibition, of an exhibition um, that never happened, but I, I've got them on my wall. So very, very kind of, yeah, um, strong kind of memories and, and, and just always seen them from the window as well. But kind of understand as well, at the same time, why, why, why they were hated as well. 
Well, that was fantastic, Chris. Um, thank you very much. You know, thank you so very much for 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 sharing that with us. And um, I'm sure that our listeners will really appreciate hearing your thoughts on Sarajevo, those kind of connections with Glasgow, and kind of you know where we go from here in terms of you know how we look after our cities and our high-rise buildings and what that means to the communities who live in them. Thank you very much. Now let's give the last words to some of the people whose voices Chris recorded before their homes were demolished. And all I seen was ruins, just to see a lifetime destroyed sort of thing. And all those people, where have they all gone? It's probably like Alan the Rigby and the Beatles. It is, it's this sort of story. All the people, all the lonely people, where did they go? Where did everybody go? It's not the actual physical building, it's all your, your memories into it, because that's what I, that's what I was kind of brought up made, that's, that's what's made me what I am. So it's like any man's like made the memories into it, so if you're, you're physical, manifestation of your memories goes in, it's, it's got to affect you, I think. But um, I'll, I'll be very, very sad to see it go. You just always thought, look, this will always be here, they'll always be here and it'll last forever. But when you see it now, you realise it's, it's not going to last forever. <laughs>